Hello and welcome to 90% Hits, a podcast about the number one singles in Australia throughout the 90s. My name is Danny Yao and with me once again is Tim Coyle. Hi. <laughs> Casey Atkins. Hello. Down the line from the Gold Coast, Tim Byron. I really, really want to want to see the R. You didn't do that as good as scary. Um, <laughs> okay, well, let's, we've been talking about another five number one singles throughout Australia, and we've kind of in the end of 96, taking us into 97. So let's get straight into it, because this song was the highest-selling single of 1996, number one for nine weeks from the 31st of August. This is Los Del Rio with Macarena. Tim Byron, do you want to start? And also, do you want to explain sort of the various versions of it? Yeah, so the Macarena is a funny one. Um, the version that is just as the Macarena, which is the original version apparently on um, Spotify and audio, is the original version. But the version you know um, that you would have heard at the time was actually a remix by the Bayside Boys, apparently, um, which is the one that has the girls singing in it and doing the ha-ha-ha-ha-ha and the laughs and all that kind of stuff. That's a, a the Bayside Boys remix, so that's the one you want to listen to. The thing you also want to avoid is the Lost Del Mar version, which got to number two in the Australian charts, which was a, a basically an exploitation ripoff. Yeah, right. right. So how did you, did you obviously remember the song back in the day and uh, did you ever learn the dance? (sighs) I think everybody learned the dance. (laughs) I think it's just one of those things that like you go to weddings and they're still doing the fucking Macarena. (laughs) It it comes on the playlist and then after that there'll be the the Mambo number five and then they'll do Gangnam Style. It's just one of those songs that um, it's just at weddings that everyone knows the dance to apparently. And so I must have done it at some point, but I can't remember doing it, but... (sighs) Yep. Yeah, as a song, it's just, you know, it's, it's just the Macarena. Like, it, it's it's hard to say I like this or I hate it. It just exists whether I like it or not. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, it's just there in the world being the Macarena. And it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't care whether you like it or not. It's just, you know, such a part of culture that it's just there. And so, liking it or hating it sort of seems beside the point. But I, I did hate it. Though, I always remember watching the video for it on Rage because the girls were cute. No. Nah. Okay. No, and so I put it on mute. <laughs> <laughs> that would, that would uh, give me a reason to watch it. Casey Atkins. You know, um, my son is four and he knows the Macarena. <laughs> 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 my 
that's the level of sophistication that we're working with. Well, huh? that's that's just the level of, of um, how deeply ingrained, as you say, Tim Byron, this is. It's just there, and sure, this is where it started, but it never went the fuck away, and it just and it won't go the fuck away, and, and even to the point where when you talk about. Gangnam style, like like we will talk about Gangnam Gangnam style for a while, or for you know decades to come. You talk about it, and it's like, oh, this is the new Macarena. You know, it's like hmm. the, the the Macarena is the reference point for stuff like that, and it's still and it kind of always will be. So, yeah, and, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. Actually, it's, it's very very. Um, it's kind of useless or pointless even talking about whether or not you like it. Of course, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> but what, I mean, what is to like, really? It's like saying, do you like the national anthem? Like, I, did, I don't know. <laughs> it's just a fucking song. Like, it's, and it has to be there, so it's there. But, you know. Kim Kyle. Yeah, it's just, it's a monster single with a dance. And it's an odd one because, yeah, it has the, the, provenance that Tim Byron was talking about, that it was originally recorded by Los Del Rio, um, which it already was a novelty song. Yeah. And it flopped. And then someone, somewhere, the Bayside Boys, went, okay, we'll put this through the FHM filter. Yeah. And <laughs> this is what it came out with. And, yeah, it's, you know, what can, what can you say about it? I mean, we could pull it to pieces on musical and cultural grounds, but it would have absolutely no effect on anything whatsoever. And because yeah, we I, usually have an effect pulling stuff yeah, apart. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> that's, that's kind of beside the point. But um, <laughs> look, I, I spoke about that thing when you're at the, the work Christmas party and oh, when uh, Give It Up mm. comes on. That's the time to leave. When this comes on, you know you have stayed too long. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you're not getting out with your dignity intact. <laughs> and this always precipitates someone humiliating themselves. And, yeah, that's just Is that what, person the DJ? Well, <laughs> it should be. Plus one more yeah. on the dance floor. So, yeah, this song has just picked up a whole bunch of cultural import and significance on its own that is bizarre for something so resolutely shit. <laughs> I, I agree with everyone in that it's hard to be critical of this because what do you say? It is, there's not much to it, um, but it's just become so much bigger than, than a music thing, really. It's a dance, it's a, it's a cultural thing. Uh, th my comments on this really is that it feels so 90s. It is just like, you know, and I wonder what a uh, 17, 18-year-old might think of this song now because it's so, so 90s. It's, yeah, it's around. I remember it very clearly. I don't listen to it ever. I don't have it on my iPod or anything like that. I don't even know if I own a copy of this song. I don't know if you guys did back in the day. No. Um, but someone no. bought it. It was number one. So For a very long time. Yes. Yeah, but and, did any um, of you guys buy Gangnam Style? Yeah, Gangnam no. Style's pretty fun. <laughs> I don't know who buys a Gangnam Style, no. though, like a Macarena. But, you know, just as a quick aside, I don't think you need to buy Gangnam Style now because if you ever want to listen to it, it's one click away. But oh, this is the point that I wanted to embrace. My 10-year-old nephew would have wanted to have bought Gangnam Style. Yeah. His parents wouldn't let him. But <laughs> <laughs> and this is the That's thing good with, parenting. With Gangnam Style, yeah. And, and this is that... 
Um, I, I guess it's different with this, but with with Gangnam Style, like I, I don't, I understand how Gangnam Style's got like a billion YouTube views. What I don't understand is that that many people bought it because yes. you can just get it for free <laughs> yeah. if you want it. This, I guess, is different. I mean, it's a different age. It's 15, 18 years ago, whatever it is. Um, where if you really wanted to hear it, I guess you had to own it. Um, or switch on the radio once every five minutes, I guess. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess there's that as well. But, like, seriously, people bought this CD single. Oh, it's so many people. It. And they played that one track and then they took the CD single out again. Yeah. Like, it just seems... Um, and one of the things about this was um, the loss on um, on Spotify. The version of this that uh, Los Del Rio have on the, they've got an album called Macarena Nonstop. Oh God! <laughs> and on that album, about five or six of the tracks are actually Macarena. I don't know whether like different versions of it or something, but five or six tracks on it are just the Macarena. <laughs> oh, you didn't listen to them all? No, I just saw it when I was searching for stuff on Spotify. No, no. <laughs> I, mean, I like that this. I like that this just implies this was the one thing they had. And oh just, yeah. <laughs> well, they're such weird-looking dudes. Those two, like um, you know, all the sort of South American guys, this sort of with that little smile they have on their face that they've been like making this music for like fifty years, and then some guys done a remix, and they've got this sort of um, you know, they, they're they're on a. Um, you know, in, in, in this music video, just doing their same kind of thing, looking totally out of place in their yeah, own song. That was the thing. It's like Danny, Danny talked about when he saw Fred Schneider, the B-52s, going, what's this guy doing on Rage? Yeah. He's too old. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what are these two geezers doing there? It's just, they're kind of there and there's all the women barely wearing anything and they're just kind of there in their tuxes bouncing up and down and snapping their fingers. Yeah. And, yeah, it's just... It's such an obvious novelty thing of haha, old guys in suits snapping their fingers and they're totally out of place. <laughs> so I looked at the, the, the entire discography of Lost Del Rio <laughs> um, and their singles discography and their singles discography. I can actually recite without looking at it. It was their first single was Macarena, uh-huh. the second single was Macarena, the remix that we're talking about, the third single was Macarena Christmas. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and then some song called Bala Bala. <laughs> that's it, that's your entire career song right there. <laughs> so, there you go. So, so apparently the thing with Los Del Rio and Macarena in, in general is that um that they were a, a Spanish band, I think. They're, they're from mm. Spain. But it's just them too, right? It's a duo. Which- Makes sense. Yeah, they're, they're, so they're just a duo, and they're from Spain, and they had um, they did this song called Macarena that they apparently uh, they went to like Peru or Venezuela or something like that, and they wrote the song there, and they actually were like it originally was meant to be Magdalena, as in Mary Magdalene, and um, and someone misheard something or other and thought it was Macarena, and so it became that, and so this was a song. This was a song that was um, a hit in that kind of like South American kind of world. And so it was a hit in um, Puerto Rico. And I think there was a Puerto Rican politician who used it as their theme song. <laughs> so, yeah, so, um, so it was a hit in, in, um, in the Hispanic area of Florida. And one of the people um, heard it, some guy from Bayside Records, one of the Bayside boys heard it, decided that they'd do a remix. So they did that um, with a singer called Carla Vanessa, who um, has never done anything before in her life and will never do anything again, probably, and has probably made a lot of money from this and is just like laughing. Uh, so they did it with her. Um, with the remix and she did the, the female vocals, they put like a dance beat behind it and that was the one that, that got big. And yeah, and then there was Lost Del Mar who did a rip-off version that got to number two in the Australian charts because people couldn't remember whether it was Lost Del Mar or Lost Del Rio and so both of them were sitting there in the racks <laughs> and they had to pick one. It had to be Lost Del Mar or Lost Del Rio and they were like, well, 
oh, I don't know, Lost Del Mar. They took it home and they're like, but where's the girl? Mm. <laughs> where's the girl singing? And they're like, oh, we got the wrong one. And so that was at number two for two weeks in Australia because the Macarena was that big. So the thing with the name with Macarena now, Lost or Rio, I think are from Andalusia in Spain, which is where Seville yep. is. And yep. I think a r- part, one of the regions of Seville is called El Macarena. Um, so it was a fortunate slip of the tongue on someone's behalf and they just picked it uh-huh. up and ran with it. Um, the, the, the other thing is um, this song was used at the Democratic National Convention in 1996. Really? I just love the idea of Bill Clinton kind of grew into this song. Was that <laughs> Sidle- <laughs> sidling up to scantily clad women and doing the macarena. That's or just doing the finger snapping thing whilst bouncing up and down. He must have related to those two guys. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Do you reckon he got his saxophone out and tried to play along? <laughs> Our second song tonight is number one for 11 weeks all up, the last nine weeks of 1996 and two weeks into 1997. And this is the Spice Girls with one of you. by the Spice Girls, big hit in 96 and 97. Where should we start with this one? Tim Coyle, how about you? Yeah, it's a huge hit in, <laughs> at the time. I just, yeah, I remember it being huge. And yeah, it's, it's, it was a little bit of an odd one because um, a lot of the people who I was seeing getting into it were usually not into this style of music. Right. And, yeah, it, it was kind of weird in that really? way. It really, yeah, it pushed a lot of people who weren't otherwise into poppy stuff back into to listening to it. And I think part of the reason for that is it is such a fun song and there is such a sense of abandonment to it and there is a bit of, a bit of cheekiness and brattiness about it. And, yeah, part of that's just reliving being a, a young kid again, which I think... People, people responded to, and yeah, they were garish and uh, I think to a lot of Australian eyes quite odd um, in in a good way for for a lot of people. And look, listening to it this week, I, I like that piano riff. It just has something about it, and yeah, it's fun. I enjoyed listening to it. It's it's not something I will will listen to again after this podcast is over. But yeah, when this came on after. Macarena. Yeah. It was great. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to go next with this one. I totally, obviously, I remember it back in the time. I didn't buy it. I didn't really buy into what the Spice Girls were doing. I think I just sort of moved on from that to some degree. 
But I remember going, that, thinking that this was a fun song and the effectiveness of what it was trying to do. Like I knew the names of all the Spice Girls. I could, I remember that, you know, the green singlet from the, from the film clip, everything about it, like the look of them, the, everything is so clear in my mind having not listened to this song. In ages, and I actually didn't have this on my iPod at all. Like I just, I have so many songs on my iPod, and, and this isn't one of them. Uh, listening to it this week, uh, and I actually talk about some of the other research I did this week for this song. But I uh, listened to it this week. Uh, yeah, it is so fun. And actually, I remember about a year ago, I was out with some friends, and there were some let's call them younger people with us, and this song came <laughs> came on. And some of the girls who were twenty, like they just they just knew every word, and they were dancing on tables and stuff like that. And I was just like, yeah. I can totally tell. This is their song. When you're th- 12, 13, when this song comes out, this is an amazing song for you. And it's fun. It is a, It is probably, like, it's still the best song that they have. I remember all the other songs that they have, and it's, this is better than all the other ones. And, yeah, what a song. Like, totally, like, one of those, those bands or artists ever that pretty much said everything they wanted to say on their first single and then kind of struggled to do anything after that. So, yeah, great, fun pop song that I don't ever need to listen to again. Hmm. Casey? Yeah, I was, I was real, I was becoming really snobby by this point, so I was really like, I think, um, to the other side of what you were saying, Tim Coyle, I, I wasn't like, oh, I don't like this music, but even this has got something, and now I was like this, I was, I was like, what's this shit? Like, <laughs> you know, I was really like that at the time, and I'm embarrassed to say it because I must have been such a, fucking nod to be around sometimes but um <laughs> but yeah so i was very very dismissive of it that said to danny's point i still knew all their names right? yeah you know i still knew which was which and yeah um but you know i i listened to it this week and i had a great time i thought it was really really enjoyable i thought um it had some excellent little hooks in there like um even at the point where you think all the hooks are dried up, they're bringing that, you know, the slam your body down and da 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 thing, um, which gave it new life and, you know, I think it's beautifully put together and, and, and culturally it was just absolutely massive, absolutely massive. Tim Byron. I remember seeing the video for this possibly on like Red on the on the pay TV channel that I think my dad had by this point. I remember seeing the video for it possibly before it was... Um, in the, in the charts. And I remember looking at it and just being sure that this was going to be huge. Like I probably was already huge in the UK, but like you didn't know about that. But I remember just like watching it and just being like transfixed by watching the video for it and their nipples in particular. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's it's a one take video as well. Is it actually? It's one shot. Well, and it was a very, very cold night by all accounts. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, I remember just being transfixed by it and, um, and, and being very fascinated by it. I never went out and bought it because, like, it wasn't for me in that kind of way. But um, it, it's a basically is a perfect pop song. Like, in terms of it's just hook after hook after hook. There's a piano hook. There's, like, you know, probably ten different vocal hooks and things that they sing, like the chorus, like the um, you really want to, want to, want to, and all the kind of repeats of that and um, the thing that Casey mentioned with the Sammy Buddy down and one, you know, like, it's just hook after hook after hook. And the way they perform it is just great. Like, mm. it's, it's a really kind of bratty kind of performance where they're not really singing particularly in tune. They're not out of tune, but they're not trying to sing, like, nicely in tune. They're just kind of <coughs> singing with so much personality and, and, and vibrancy. It's just a, it's just a, a fantastic 
Um, it's just this fantastic pop song. And I thought that then, even though I was kind of embarrassed by liking it a little bit because I knew it wasn't meant for me. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I listen to it now and I just like think this is a, a great pop song. It's, you know, perfectly performed. It really like sets up who the Spice Girls are and yeah, it's great. Yeah. I mean, listening to it this week, it really just that from the opening, I just been going, wow, it's so confident and such bravado, just that opening mm. of show you what you want, what you really, really want. And then it's interchanging between scary and, and Jerry Hallowell, just like, um, the arrangement of how they do it. And Mel C is the one that can sing. Mm. And she does sing the fuck out of it. But, um, but yeah, it is. Yeah. We've talked about this before, how much attitude mm. uh, gets you over the line and attitude is just in abundance. Well, this is all attitude. And I think part of that is because everyone but Mel C was so limited in <laughs> what they could do vocally that they had to really sell the attitude um, in, in this song, and, and they do it. And uh, I, part of what I like about it, it's very British exuberance mm-hmm. that they're bringing to it. I, I think there's a yeah. thing with, say, American exuberance that's very kind of solemn, and you know, <laughs> uh, whereas, yeah, that British thing of having a bit of a sense of humor about yourself, and that even when you're being very confident and exuberant, that there's, um, something being held in reserve there, whether that be the sense of humour or something, um, that's yeah. definitely within this song. And, yeah, there's a certain degree of camp or performance about what they're doing that's really great. Okay, well, then I'm just going to talk, that leads nicely into what I did this week to, to research for this. <laughs> I watched for the very first time Spice World, the Spice Girls movie. And fuck, it was great. <laughs> it was so good. It has 29% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I just loved it. It is one of my favourite Muppets movies ever. Right. It is, that's no, exactly see, what it is. No, I see that. It is basically four cartoon, five cartoon characters who make fun of each other with no sense of realism and then a million cameos. And Meatloaf. And Meatloaf. <laughs> Meatloaf is the best. When they're talking about the, the tour bus on the toilet is too dirty... And Meatloaf just goes, look, I love these girls. I would do anything to pull them but that. <laughs> and you just go, you got Meatloaf to say that. <laughs> like, there are so many in-jokes for someone to watch as an adult. Uh, the Elvis Costello moment, there's an Elvis, there's just like, it's near the end of the movie, Richard E. Grant, who's their manager, <laughs> is depressed and the Spice Girls are about to break up, as you know that they're going to in a film like this. And he talks about how fickle fame is and how quickly people forget you. And he's at a bar. And he goes to the bartender, can I have a drink? And it's Elvis Costello. And he goes, hold on, can I make that a double? And Elvis Costello just says yes. <laughs> he's, he is Elvis <laughs> Costello in it. Like, he's not yeah. playing a character. Like, there is every cameo in the world. There's, there's a bit where they become a spy movie and Jerry Hallowell is the master of disguise and she walks in the phone booth and they do the quick fast-forward edit and it comes out and it's Clive James. <laughs> it's just Clive James for no reason. <laughs> it's just like, you know, it is... A joyous experience, but also made me feel like, yeah, they totally got it right. For some reason, from day one, whoever was behind them just went, these are what you find about, here are the personalities you have, here's the costumes that you wear, and here's what you sing about, this positivity. Let's not forget girl power. Yes. Yeah, of course. And they just did it. Like, they just, it was so effective. And, like, it didn't affect me that much, but it did affect the girls around me. Pretty affected girls to the 10 years younger than me. So hard. But, yeah. 
and I love what they had to say about the world. They were very positive and nice, and left it, you know, it was great. So this, the sense of humour and reverence, yeah. I think, which often is something that gets lost in a lot of conversations around gender and these things that can often get a little po-faced. Yeah, sure. And that's not is yeah. what is going on here. I mean, I can, you know, my mum's my a pretty fierce feminist, and part of that is that humour and irreverence are not really part of um, what she will invoke to put that across. Whereas I think as a generational thing, when you get into things like the Spice Girls, um, that is a very big part of the message, that they're using these, um, I guess you'd call it a technique, to, to get the message across. And part of that's just being completely irreverent and complete, not having any um, kind of airs or graces or um, politeness or even respect for any ideology. Mm. They're just there to kind of prank and be bratty and um, there's yeah. something joyous about that. And you can totally see that in the video clip mm. for um, for Wannabe, like because they're running around this sort of hotel and like you well, know getting tweaking, up in everyone's yeah, faces, tweaking noses of yeah, yeah. hoity-toity folks there, yeah. and yeah, there's there's something there's something about the childish abandon of that. Yeah, that that's great, and it's something that I think at times we lose when we talk about gender issues. There's also something super sexy about the Spice Girls in that particular video clip as well, doing all that kind of stuff. Um, in that they they were sexy doing it, but they weren't really trying to be. Like, that they were sort of wearing, you know, just sort of standard stuff that girls wear all the time, um, and they were just running around being stupid and stuff, but they were sexy sort of not trying to be, but just kind of happened anyway, and that's part of the attitude and part of the, um, the you know, the, the irreverence that you were talking about. I think that's just part of their image. Like, the, the, they were anti-upper class, anti-stutiness, they're all about having fun, Wearing what you want, mm. being anyone you could be. They were so multicultural. They, mm. you know, they had, there was, they had, and look, as crass as it is and as mathematical it is, they had the tomboy, they had baby spies, they had, like, you know, it was almost as if they worked it out with a formula, but they probably didn't. But it just was, they were every woman in, in Britain at least, if not Australia, of that, like, teenage girls. They loved it. They saw themselves in it. And, yeah, and that attitude, which is also an aspect of it that I find interesting, that they completely deconstruct the boy band method almost, that you've got to have a one of every type. Yeah. There. They do yeah. that, and then they just tear it all up yeah. and <laughs> become something completely other, which is great. So the only obvious thing left to do is the crash one. Well, which is your favourite Spice Girl? Danny. You know what? I was thinking about this, and I, don't, I just think I was too old to find any of them attractive at the time. Like, they were kind of just cartoon anime girls, really. So, I don't know. I guess if I had to choose, it would be Victoria? I don't know. Mel I remember watching the wannabe video clip and thinking about this, because I was 14 by this point, so I was very interested <laughs> in this stuff. And... Um, and I remember th- with the wannabe video clip, I definitely thought Victoria was the hottest. But then, like, uh, the next video clip after that, like, she'd obviously, like, started on her road to anorexia or whatever it is that, you know, being a model and stuff that she wanted to be. And so she became less attractive, and I started to become more attracted to Mel C. Yep. Uh, 
Redheads every time. Uh, so, yeah, right. yeah, Jerry Hallowell, I thought, could corrupt me in all the good ways. <laughs> 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 Third song of tonight uh, was number one for just one week uh, on the 19th of January 1997, and this is Savage Garden with To The Moon Back. She's taking time making up the to justify all the hurt inside Guess she knows from the smiles and the look in their eyes Everyone's got a theory about the bitter one They're saying, mama never loved her much And daddy never keeps in touch That's why she shies away from human affection But somewhere in a private place She packs back for outer space now she's waiting for the right kind of pilot to come And she'll say to me She'll say I'll fly you to the moon and back If you'll be If you'll be my baby Gotta take it for a world where we belong So won't you be my baby Now we to the moon back Savage Garden, number one for one week in January of 1997. The first time we've encountered this mega star band. Casey Atkins, why don't we start with you? Um, so, again, similar to the whole Spice Girls thing, and, and uh, looking back on it, I just see what an unsufferable dick I must have been. But <laughs> this, this, I just felt at the time was just so not for me and I was listening to probably Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin and, and UMI and Powerfinger and things like that by this stage. So so this stuff, ugh, ugh, as if you would, kind of thing. But wow, what a fucking great song. So this is awesome. This is just such a great pop song. And I, I think I almost... Um, it was one of the things that I think I actually did kind of like, but I would never have admitted it to anyone, let alone myself. Um, and I think it's great. Um, when you when you listen to it, really, and when I listen to it again this week and, and a couple of times that I have heard it in the last number of years, it, it's rock set, essentially. Mm. Um, and... Well, it is. Uh, I've got another. I've got another comparison. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it just and it does it beautifully. I think um, it's just incredibly well well put together. The harmonies and, and everything is so perfectly placed, um, and it's beautifully constructed pop song. I think it's really really good song. Now, I look, I'll, I'll go next because I mentioned that. Of um, I've always seen Savage Garden as well, not always, but I think I've come to to think of Savage Garden as. The new Petropolis, like the really? duo thing, the dancey thing, and I you guess that—that's where I get Roxette is the duo thing. Yeah. Especially when you watch the clip and there's one guy playing a guitar. <laughs> exactly. And then, then mm, yeah. Jones. Yeah. Um, and look, I, and I think this is a great pop song as well. I probably didn't like it so much at the time. In the like, and I guess we'll have more chance to talk about Savage Garden next week, actually. But this isn't a great song by their standards, I don't think. Uh, but it's it's fine. Uh, it's fun, and I remember at the time, 
Uh, I remember being it everywhere and thinking, this is great. They had another single before it, which was... I Want You. Yeah. I Want You. Yeah, which was which was huge and a bit more Petrol Boys. That was more, way more dancey. Do you remember that song? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah and, then, um, and then this was sort of a bit more of a, of a straight pop song, and it was fine. I liked it, and yeah, listening to it again this week, it was fine. But yeah, I didn't have this on my iPod either. It's not a song that I go back to uh, very much. Tim Coyle. Yeah, I'm more in Casey's camp with this one. I think at the time, I found it catchy, but it's one of those ones I'm not in the target audience, and mm. part of how it's been pitched at me meant that it just kind of flew flew by me a little bit, and I yeah, let that one go through to the keeper, and I, <laughs> it got to number one. It hit its target audience fine without, me, you. without yeah. me liking it. <laughs> now it's it's... A perfect pop song. It's superb. It's yep. just everything about it is so well put together. The vocal performance is outstanding. Um, just, yeah, great hooks. Um, production is sheeny shiny, but brilliantly sheeny shiny. And, yeah, there's not one level of this song that doesn't work for me now. I think it's fantastic. Tim Byron. It's interesting, you guys. Like, I'm surprised you guys are all so into this um, because, like, in recent times in the podcast, like, I've been like, yeah, this is all right. And you've been like, oh. Yeah. And, um, and this one is the opposite for me. Um, I actually listened to this song and um, I, I really liked I Want You, like, at, at the time, the, their first single. I thought that was nice and interesting. I remember hearing that on Triple J before they were the big pop band. Like, you know, Triple J were playing them at that point. And... Um, I remember hearing this and being a bit sort of frustrated that it wasn't quite as upbeat. Listening to the to this song, for me, it actually, by this point, by like the start of 1997, I'd started writing songs. And to be honest, this song reminds me of the kind of song I would have written at the time. Like, to me, this song seems really awkward, and it kind of has this weird mix of sort of like things that are quite simple and quite sort of, you know, sing-songy in that kind of way. Things that probably shouldn't work, but somehow do because they get away with it because he's a really good singer and he like really sells the song well. And there's like sort of like lines here and there that are really pretentious and that just like, it's like, oh, why do you have to sing that? And so, like, I, I perhaps should have, um, you know, gone back to some of those first songs that I wrote and maybe they would be all like this and I'd have, uh, you know... <laughs> no, it's definitely like, a, like an early song by them. Like, I mean, it's... it's yeah. uh We'll talk about this more, but, yeah, it's it's the start of a songwriting career. We'll yeah. talk about this more other artists tonight. Yeah, and so, like, it is the kind of start of a songwriting career kind of thing. And, um, and yeah, so for me, like, I, I sort of, like, find it a bit cringy. And this is probably not really about Savage Garden and more about me being reminded of the kind of songs I wrote then and how cringy those <laughs> songs make me feel. Um, and so, yeah, for me, um, you know, I, I get it. Like, he, he's, a, he's a good singer and it's, it's catchy in here. And I do like the outro that they stole, you know, straight from Epic by Faith No More. Um, <laughs> But yeah, for, and it, but yeah, there's things in it that just make me cringe, and so yeah, I'm not that much of a fan of this. Look, we have to be careful here because we will talk about Savage Garden again next week. Yes, when we talk about um, then returning to the top of the charts. So I guess the only thing I want to say before we wrap up was what Tim Byron touched on, which is that I think even for this song as well, they were still a Triple J artist. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? That um, and and we've. This has happened with a few bands where, like Ace of Bass being the other thing, mm. where all that she wants was played on Triple J until tri- they became mm. huge and Triple J were sort of dissociated, dissociated themselves with that. Yeah. And look, and I guess this is the thing where, I mean, Darren Hayes has said that he listens to Triple J more than he listens to 
Yeah. Anything else? I mean, he and they. I, I think it's just a point that I want to make before we close this off is that it was what's happened to pop music at the time, and maybe what he was doing at the time. Like he turned out to be quite wannabe frontman and gay and everything, uh, and leaned towards the pop side. But at least at this point, they were just two guys living in Brisbane wanting to make pop songs, probably wanting to sound like the Pet Shop Boys or U2, and they were playing a triple J. Mm. Which uh, the interesting thing about about that is going back to what I said. Uh, about not being in the target market, and it seems that they were confused about what that was. Yeah. yeah. Before, before I, the US got a hold of them, and all of a sudden there was real clarity about who they were and who they were pitching at, uh, which was yeah. it's the pop market. And yeah, until until that point, there was was a bit of confusion around it, and yeah, they didn't seem to maybe know where they fit in, and whoever was handling them at the time was kind of. Oh, are these, are these guys Triple J or are yeah. they, where do they fit? And they maybe didn't know what that was. But there was just less division then. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I think nothing, you're right, yeah. There's nothing this mm. song does that Wonderwall doesn't do. Yeah. You know, and that's that's kind of the world where you could... Uh, actually, we have another example of it later tonight as well. It is one of those songs that could be Triple J, it could be Today FM, it could be Triple M. At this point, that song was just that song, and Savage Garden were yet to become Savage Garden. Yeah, if if, that, yeah. if this if Truly Madly Deeply never happened, and it was just this song, and I Want You, which was a massive hit, mm. we would think mm. of them very differently. They would be low tell. Yeah, you know, right. it would be better than low tell. <laughs> but you know, well, would they That's not hard. if it was if it was just I Want You and To the Moon and Back compared to I don't know, like I mean. Teenager of the Year. Yeah, okay, it's a better song than that. But there were there were better one hit wonders than To the Moon and Back. And so I guess. I mean oh, yeah, I mean definitely. So you know, we're we're at this point where it really was their story starts, I think. And what makes them interesting and what makes the dynamism between those two people in that band just isn't there yet. This is time this is happy times. This is yeah, we're fucking in a garage in Brisbane, we made a couple of samples, wrote a couple of nice songs, we about things were good. Mm. Our fourth song of tonight was uh, number one for just two weeks in January of 1997. And this is Silverchair number one for two weeks in 1997. 
Tim Coyle, why don't we start with you? Fuck this. I think this might actually be the worst song we've done. Right. Yeah. Uh, I hate this. I hated it at the time. I loathe it now with so much passion. Um, there's, there's that thing starters mean to go on my god he starts out poorly no more maybes your baby's got rabies and it, it gets worse and oh god it's just yeah we're, we're, we're at that point where it's plastic grunge kind of stuff being churned out and the odd thing like this is Australia's grunge band it's our only grunge band so everyone just bought into it yeah. and pretended as tried to take this seriously. People in the music industry were taking this seriously. How could anyone listen to this song with a straight face? And, yeah, like, how did this get past the, the stage of the producers sitting there going, no, this should not be on any album anywhere ever. This is sludge. This is dreadful. But, you know, got the number one, so... <laughs> That's that's how deeply invested in the grunge thing people were at the time, and yeah, it's it's baffling that people were so just couldn't see behind the curtain with Silverchair. I find, but you know, other other people might give me some insight as to why that that's the case. So yeah, Casey Atkins. No, no insight here. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! So I, I mean, I wrote. A blog piece after we talked about the last Silverchair song tomorrow, um, talking about um, drop detuning, and I think I even talked about it a little bit on the on the last podcast, the last Silverchair related podcast as well. And this this is really the um, the example of how that guitar riff is basically um, just one finger, one finger, one finger over three strings moving up and down. It's and I just hated it on that level because, like, I just remember sitting around going, I'm a fucking guitar player than this fucking guy was. <laughs> <laughs> one, one string Danny. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and also, just, it's just so bad. Like, and, and I think he's trying to be, like, faux metaphorical and poetic. Like, I've, I've read things about, like, you know, baby's got rabies and my, my baby is like my, my art and my band and, and no. like has got rabies no. and it's like people <laughs> like, um, thinking, you know, d- talking down about my art and, you know, like that's. No, you just, I, you got I, baby I, rhymes with, it's got to be something disgusting. Yeah. Rabies, put your hands in the air, rhymes with just don't care. Yeah. So, you know, that's, yeah. that's all that it's is. Just so, but it's. And but the fact that there were so many people that bought into, oh my god, that's just so amazing, Daniel. How did you do that? And oh, fuck him and fuck this, <laughs> Kimbo. Yeah, this is. Um, I remember at the time at school, like that, no one the Suache were really, really uncool to like. That's the thing I remember about them. That like, right? Yeah, pe- people didn't like them, and the people who did like them were like girls. Like yeah. that was that that was their fan. Were life thing. Well, like girls or, or were girls? <laughs> I, I I was never in a position with any of the girls from school to verify it, but I assume they were female. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I, I, I sort of felt like that it was the like the girls who were actually really into Silverchair at this point. That um, that you know, for for most of the guys, they were just kind of like Silverchair. And in fact, I remember um, in '97, I went to my first. I think '97, I went to my first festival, which was the Equinox Festival, which was held at Macquarie Uni, and. Um, I remember I um, Tool were one of the bands there, and I remember during Tool I was bored or something, and so I decided to go and get some food. And you know, I was for fifteen, and like it was my first festival, and I was hungry, and so I went and found some horrible food at the time because you know, food at festivals then was horrible. And as I was walking away from Tool, like I remember, like these sort of big beefy guys without shirts on were like, "Silverchair are that way? No, Silverchair are that way. You're going to see Silverchair?" Like as if they were trying to sort of you know shame us into going back and watching Tool. And like right. so, so you know, at this point, like Silverchair were like, you know, their name was marred as far as like, um, you know, people who were integrant were were concerned, as far as I could tell. But um, yes, they were warning you off from going to go see Silverchair. Yeah, yeah, that they were they were using like you're going to see Silverchair if you're not going to like watch Tool now, which you should be doing because Tool are, Tool are amazing. You know, and that's that's what their idea was in their heads. Um, for for me, like. I reckon this has got an okay riff in it. Like, it's a catchy riff, and I like the kind of... You're fucking uh, kidding me, aren't you? (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm fine with the riff. Um, The the lyrics at the start are pretty awful. Um, The lyrics in the rest of the song are uh, are sort of more workman-like rather than actively awful. Like, it's it's that first verse, which is... In the middle of the Andes? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But, like, it, it's that first verse which is awful and the rest is just kind of, like, you know, he, he's basically just singing about, like, how he's not cool and, like, he feels like a freak and, you know, I, I could understand that as that kind of basic idea of grunge that, you know, you're a freak or you're a creep or you're kind of this or that or a loser. You know, it's like I've got that same kind of logic to it and I could relate to that to some extent. But, yeah, I, I was never, like, a huge fan of this or Silverchair and, um... But, yeah, so th- this song didn't do that much for me, and I remember sort of watching it and thinking, this is weird, why is this at number one? It's not that much better than any of the other grunge stuff are going around. Because, yeah, the stuff in... One of the things about 97 was that by this point, grunge was kind of definitely on the wane, and that, like, you know, all the bands that were doing grunge had moved on to something else. Uh, I will give you this to Byron in that I would much rather go see Silverchair the Tool. Um, but, yeah, but Maynard isn't that big of an improvement on Daniel Jones. Yeah. I was just going to get food. I would eat anything. Like, I would eat testicle. It's a seed of his life. Um, <laughs> freak. Jeez. Um, what do we say about this shitty, shitty, shitty song? There is just a, that, pretty yeah, much. <laughs> okay, so just to echo the sentiments of everyone else, there was nothing to me related to it. Like, I mean, I we all feel disconnected with teenagers, right? But we didn't feel this. This was so broad strokes. And... Oh. <laughs> I don't know if I should go into my... Because my, it goes into Radiohead hate. But if you're going to compare it to Creep, there's one of the reasons I hate the song Creep. It's the same reason I hate the song Freak. Which is it made... It made mainstream people feel like they were different. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like there is private school. But you talk about how you like alternative for everybody. Yeah, but no. But this is just it. another alternative for everybody. No, but this was the reason that a white supremacist can feel like they've, they've been hard done by. And this is the song. Like, I mean, Creep, 
<laughs> like I mean, it's just like, oh, like, I'm so victimized and stuff like that. And oh, yes, these these this taxi driver who's got funny eyes is going to attack me or some bullshit. Like they grew up listening to songs like this. I'm what? a freak with no real. No, basis. they didn't. You know, and that's you know that's the thing. They they makes people feel like a victim for no reason, and I hate those songs. Yeah, you you you're right about that. It's like you're not you're just you're a really really fucking popular dude that chicks yeah. fucking love. Oh, you're actually had quite a, a number one record. It's... You're very a very good looking man, and, this and you're the... nice, and you're and you're young and fresh, and you're saying oh, I'm a real freak, and everybody hates me. Fuck you. And that's the same with everybody. But everyone single... did hate him. Look at you guys like <laughs> ranting about it. Everyone was. <laughs> him at that point and like people would throw shit him in it in the streets but all the popular kids at any school was singing the same thing you know this is uh you know but maybe you know i like the show freaks and geeks i have no understanding of what the popular kids do with their lives so fuck them but um <laughs> but yeah this song has so little there's the ben folds thing if you're gonna have text you might as well have some subtext there is no subtext here <laughs> there is nothing uh yeah, I just hate it. And although I will say this, I think I'm not sure about this song in particular, but I know that Daniel Johns is quite embarrassed by some of the stuff that is on his early records, and he doesn't really play it anymore. And let's so you should be. And let's face it, he was fucking young. I know. he yeah was thrown. So they were sixteen or seventeen at this point. You I know, think they were probably all of that by this point. I think sixteen and seventeen might have been Frogstar. Um, yeah, and it was 15 when they got signed. Yeah. 16 from So they were probably just ending high school now. Yeah, no, no, if you're 18, 19, you're probably still not that mature. Of though. course. Especially sure. under these circumstances where you've got to make a follow up album to the big one that you released as your debut, and you're probably feeling pressure from a lot of, a lot of angles to do that. He's only he's only he, one year older than me, so yeah, he would have been seventeen. Yeah, he, he turned eighteen in um, a uh, couple yeah. of months after yeah. this came out. So that is my big forgiveness for this whole entire disaster and embarrassment that is the first two albums by Silverchair, which is like how many great artists were, how many shit artists was writing anything other than shit at age seventeen. Michael oh, yeah. Jackson, Stevie Wonder. Yeah, but like they're they're Laura Marling. massively Laura exceptions Marling. to the rule. Like you don't expect one for us that. But like, still, they are like most seventeen-year-olds don't have any of this stuff together. Um, did you guys have? Um, did you guys have? Uh, like the sort of bands that would be like the school band who had their own song and they all kind of sounded a bit like this because it was an easy like, song to do. Like Zit Remedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have yeah, like Zit Remedy. It's this kind of thing. Like I'm sure there was like a hundred other bands around Australia who made music that was basically like this who just never got a chance to go into a studio and record it and have it promoted. Yes. Um, in fact, my, there was a band in my school that was the rival band from my band. It was a band called Elysium. <laughs> Elysium. And they did... Uh, sound exactly like Silver Chess. Silver Chess was the model of what they wanted to be. And they won the Channel V leg up, uh, which they got to record a single with Chris from Silver Chair. Uh, and it is still something that makes me angry because this is around the time I was just leaving school. And they got to record Chris Silver Chair while they were doing the Neon Ballroom album, which mm. they had Amanda Brown from the Go Betweens playing violin on. And so she played violin on that Elysium single. And it's like, 
I'm the one who loves the go-betweens. I'm the one who's in love with Amanda Brown. And they won a shitty competition and they didn't know who the fuck she was and got to do it. And they almost got Van Dyke Parks to play piano on their record as well. And well, I would have fucking killed them. In that well, Van Dyke Parks ended up producing a couple of Silverchair records, like in, uh, a record in a couple of uh, records time for Silverchair. Yeah, we played on piano on the, like a couple of, like he played on tracks for them. Mm. And I think I think he either co-wrote or orchestrated. I think maybe he orchestrated some orchestrated, of the stuff on you're right, you're right. Um, um, the ball, neon, the neon ballroom album, yeah, or diorama or something. And oh, maybe you're right, diorama. Yeah. And that's when they started getting a little bit interesting. There, like, there, are, so, there are songs on those albums I can stomp. So there which are very may, very few, which maybe plays into Danny's thing of just you know he had not matured as a songwriter yet and it was just a plaything of his label <laughs> and of people who just needed an Australian grunge star yeah. so they flogged it look we don't get to talk about Silver Chair again right so let's yeah. just get out here which is yeah Anthem from year 2000 shit 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 and a song first time I thought something interesting was going on right I mean mm. it was a fucking step above it was 2 out of 10 other than 10 no, 0 out of 10 and then from then on he just kept making three, four out of ten-ish songs that I just went, oh, they've never listened to this, but, well, he doesn't seem like he's got nothing to say anymore. I definitely can't say that. And it doesn't feel like he's not a very good musician. I definitely can't say that. He just wasn't doing anything that was interesting to him being. But, God, he was a, this was, this was, was a major step above what this was from him on the one, the one song from this period that I liked was The Door, which was, like, Played a bit on Triple J, that had like a nice sort of riff to it, like yeah, yeah, like had sort that of that one. kind of Led Zeppelin a- kind of riff that was a bit more melodic than Freak, and that was a song I actively liked at the time. I didn't wouldn't have bought the single, but I liked hearing it. That was the one thing at the time that I that I liked. Yeah, that was a bit more of a pop song, wasn't it? it sounded like ammonia or something like that. It was just like yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that 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 riff was alright. Still dropped D though, but he used the um, he used the G string like he went <laughs> all the way. He went four strings uh, up. From, uh, you know, so, so that's that's something. It's showing some development. Yeah. yeah. I um, I thought Greatest View was all right. You remember that one? I didn't uh, mind that. I just think of the You Are My version. <laughs> like when Tim Rogers would cover it whilst everyone was tuning up and he'd be like, I'm watching you bend over me. I've got the greatest view from here. <laughs> <laughs> but apart from that, and this, is, and this is the other thing that I just couldn't stand as well. As they did develop and 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 have you know um, Neon Ballroom was had Anthem from Year Two Thousand so that wasn't much but um, then into Diorama and everyone was like oh my god look at this musical genius develop and I was like really like him like it's still in my head I'm just like this guy but yeah I mean we don't ever get to look at a show again is there anything else to say about them they, they became oh, the look, biggest I'll, I'll just like, get angry if I do so I won't. <laughs> They fulfilled a need. Yeah. That was it. They ticked a box that labels, radio stations wanted, and you know, people were crafty in how they pitched them to to the audience. I have one more question before we move on, and it's directed to Casey Atkins. Oh, yeah? How much of the fact that you hate Daniel Jones has to do with the fact that he had to have sex with Natalie earlier? <laughs> 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 oh, look, it probably didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> Our last song of tonight was number one for eight weeks from the 9th of February 1997, and this is Don't Speak by No Doubt. 
Don't Speak by No Doubt, number one for almost two months from February 1997. Tim Byron, why don't we start with you? This song, I remember um, not really liking that much at the time. Like, I was aware of No Doubt already. I knew them because of um, Just, Just a Girl, Girl in particular. Yeah. And um, and maybe they had another single before that. I forget if it would have been Spiderwebs or Sunday Morning before this came out. Maybe I'm wrong. Webs, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I, in my head, no doubt with this sort of ska band who did these kind of sort of feministy kind of songs, um, because Just a Girl is a pretty good feminist kind of song. Um, and, um, yeah, I remember liking that and then like hearing this and thinking, well, this isn't like the No Doubt that I like. Why is, what's this ballad stuff? And, um, and so, yeah, so I remember listening to this and kind of like thinking, yeah, it's okay. But it, but it was kind of, like, it seemed to me like it was their kind of selling out song. Because, like, to me, at the time, like, the song sort of seemed like it was, like, their Diane Warren song. Like, Celine Dion could kind of sing this song. And um, and that's probably a bit unfair. It's it's a really well-crafted, well-written song, and, and Gwen Stefani performs it well. It's um And listening to it now, like, the thing I think about it is it's such a Madonna song. Like, it, it's like you could imagine Madonna doing this, like, you know, it, it's got the same kind of thing as, like, um, You'll See or, like, La Ila... Bonita, like Isla Bonita. It's got that same kind of sort of yeah. vaguely Spanishy kind of sound to it. And um, Gwen Stefani is off, you know, obviously a huge Madonna fan. And um, so I, I listen to it and hear that. And yeah, it's, it's a good song. Um, but yeah, I don't have sort of like a strong feeling about the song one way or the other, one way or the other these days. Tim Clark? Yeah, a little like Tim Byron. It, it was a pale shadow of Just a Girl which is a fantastic song. And this one's kind of, is the ballad. And as Tim Byron says, this is the big pitch to a broader audience. And when you want to do that, you, you wheel out the big ballad. And yeah, that's kind of what's going on here. It's, it's all right. Sounds good. Nice guitar sounds. But yeah, it's just lacking a little something. And yeah, no doubt's decline is in full swing after this song and yeah, Gwen Stefani became quite something quite different to what you might have expected she was going to become when you heard Just a Girl. So yeah, I, I, I didn't enjoy it that much this week. It's okay, but um, yeah, it, it was that thing of, oh, there's a No Doubt song. This is going to be so much better than everything else we've listened to. It's like, oh, actually, well, it's better than Freak, but you know, it's really not that much better than anything else that we've had on there. So, yeah. Casey Atkins. 
I think this is the one of the best songs we've covered in 90 percent so far. I I adore this song. I think it's just some of the best um, pop song writing of the 90s. It's absolutely amazing in my mind. Yeah, I remember it. Um, I wasn't expecting this from No Doubt like you guys. Uh, I was mm. expecting something a bit more upbeat or something just that sounded like the No Doubt that I'd heard. But this song just... Um, just it blew me away. It absolutely blew me away. It's like, oh, slow song. What are you doing in the slow song? Oh, that's okay. That's interesting. And uh, and then it, and it hit the chorus and that harmony. And, and I just, it really just spoke to me and grabbed me. I thought it was amazing. And I still think it's amazing. And I've thought that for years and years. And I really love listening to it again this week. Um, and also this, and, and, this this is what I'm about to say is is gonna feel like it detracts from how much I love the song because I do genuinely love the song. But another factor is uh, this is the point at which I realised how hot she was. And <laughs> 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 yeah, right. Well, well, this would have been the first video where she was a bit more dressed up rather than sort of running around in sort of yeah. And, I, and you know what it was, and and, and actually because we watched it she, last night, she wasn't Gwenny from the block anymore. Yeah, and I think we watched it last night and and I was figuring out what it was that did it and it's it's both. So she's wearing that dress and she's a bit dolled up in, in half of it when the band's singing the song in the, gra- in, in the garage and yeah. then there it cuts to the live footage and she's all kind of doing the rocky, sweaty, midriff top thing and just the combination of the two I just thought was incredibly hot. And an amazing song. Yeah, I don't find Gwen Stefani attractive at all. Really? I just think that she's kind of nuts and just very, um, which is okay. But like, yeah, no, not really. However, I do fucking love this song. Right. It is a fucking great song. Uh, I kind of, I thought, must have thought it was pretty good back in the day. I bought Tragic Kingdom. Okay. But I don't think I was alone in doing that. I know. A bazillion people bought that. That album, uh, it was a really big album. Just the Girls, Spider Worms, something many more great songs. And, uh, and yeah, this was on it. A bit like when we talked about Wonderwall, this was just one. It was hard for me to really take this out of context because I probably listened to the album more than I heard it on radio. Uh, and I just, yeah, this is just another song from this album and it was quite nice. Over the years, I kind of went, oh yeah, it's fine. I know it. Like, I didn't really feel the need to listen to it again. And then this week, listening to it again, it is really, really good. Like, there's some of the arrangements okay, with the guitars, <laughs> some of the, what she's think, And what she's trying to say mm-hmm. is, like, I mean, I've never really related directly to it, but it's really effective. It's really effective lyric. There's a little bit of subtlety there. It's not fucking uh, what we talked about last week with Celine Dion. Like, it's just, there's a, it's a nice breakup pop song. Uh, and I understand why it got so big. I mean, I think, I think I'm with everyone in that. It's probably looms too large in their career when they have other better things to be remembered for. But um, yeah, it's a great song. Oh, I, 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 I think this is the crowning achievement. All right. Yeah. Uh, and it is one of those things. I, I think I was alluding to this before, where I remember Triple J played it, Triple M played it, Today FM played it, yeah, and yeah. Mix 106.5 played it. Right. There was only one other song I can ever imagine doing that, that I remember doing that, and that was Sinner by Neil Finn. 
because and it's just name recognition by that time. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and like it crossed every radio station boundary and this song was it. And it still gets played. It is one of the more modern songs to be played on Mix 106.5 to this day. It just but the fact that it is and it's not your beautiful uh, yes. is, is it a crowning achievement? So, yeah, I love this song. One of the interesting things about this song, um, talking about radio airplay, is that um, in the US in 1997, this was the most played song on US radio, probably for the reason that Danny says, like, that you could play it on, like, the various kind of rock stations and smooth stations and chart pop stations. But apparently they never released this song as a single in the US, so it never charted. But it, Oh, they, they had the so- physical single. They yeah, so they never did the physical single oh, and there were no digital singles to, at this point. To radio yeah. Kind of thing. Well, radio just started playing it because that's what radio sometimes do in the US. Yeah. But um, they would have released it to radio, but um, they never f- released an official buyable single because they wanted people to buy the album instead. And uh, American Charts takes radio airplay into account. Yeah. So a lot of times that will do you to get into the charts. See, I'm seeing a, uh, a release date for a Don't Speak single here on Wiki, but... Um, might be for other territories. It might be for Australia. Could be Australia uh, like, I mean, they used to do that a lot. Yeah. Like, you know, it's... Like, I can't imagine if OMC had a physical release in the US. It just probably would have been Airplay, right? Like... No, the, uh, the thing that happened single. in the US was that uh, you have to have a physical release for it to chart. Like the, the airplay does count towards um, airplay does count yeah. towards um, the chart placing, but you have to have a physical release. So, right. so don't speak never charted in the US, even though it went to number one in most of the other places in the world. But I guess what I'm saying is, I don't think it's that rare at this time, especially for third singles from now, which is was this was like yeah. well into it, and everyone sort of they did enough work on Tragic Kingdom to sort of people understand that that's the album to buy, and you're kind of like just a girl anyway. So why did you like two songs? Why not buy the album? The album's probably a bit discounted by then. Look, it was, um, look, this is a huge, huge record. I remember this back in the day. I mean, um, and then they did nothing since. Well, it created a bit of a crisis of identity for the band because they were that Scar yeah. and also Skate Punk. That were, those were their roots. And this seemingly just threw them into uh, the midst of an audience that they, well, what do we do now? Mm. I mean, you know, we're a number one charting group. What do we do? And is this is, is this about the point at which her brother left the band as well? Because it was always like Gwen and Eric Stefani, mm. yeah, and, and and band. Well, he's not in the film clip. He's not in this film clip. No, he's not in this film. Uh, oh, I think so this is well gone. Yeah. But it's interesting because he co-wrote this song, mm. Eric Stefani. Yeah. Um, but but the person who is really like heavily in this video clip is Tony Canal or Kamal, who's the um the one the song's written about famously, the bass player, uh, because they were in a relationship for seven years or something and broken up and she wrote the song. And so it must be really weird for him being in this video clip, like, you know, having her sing the words at him as he's playing the bass. (laughs) It's like Fleetwood Mac shit. Yeah, it's all very Fleetwood Mac. But yeah, they kind of didn't do anything after this. Like, I don't even get like a Name a No Doubt song after this. They did. Don't you remember Hella Good? Or, um, oh, there was... Or Hey Baby. Hey yeah. baby, so, hey baby. So, so hey, yeah, hey, hey baby, of course. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. Okay, is that enough for no doubt? We could rag on Gavin Rosdale for a few minutes. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> Gavin Rosdale was my goat. Like, remember when the Olympics? They were like, we didn't know who was going to hold the torch. 
to the stadium and I kept going, Gavin Rossdale. <laughs> <laughs> Gavin Rossdale, most famous British man ever. <laughs> okay, well that brings us to the end of another episode. And as usual, we will go around the room and see what everyone's favourite song is from the ones that we discussed tonight. Uh, let's just go through the list again and let's see what everyone picks. Uh, we talked about Los Del Rio's Macarena. Uh, Spice Girls Wanna Be, Savage Garden to the Moon and Back, Freaked by Silver Chair, and No Doubt Don't Speak. It's an interesting week. Tim Byron, why don't we start with you? For me, it's Wanna Be, Spice Girls. Go Power! Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's a tough one. I'm going to go with To the Moon and Back because I think it's the superior song, but Wanna Be is runner up by very, very slim margin. Casey Atkins. Oh, Don't Speak. Yeah. Hard week. Don't speak to the moon and back and want to be all up there. And I think right now, I'm just going to go with want to be. Just because, yeah. Um, go power! So, go power prevails. Go power prevails. <laughs> we'll be back next week with one of our Choose Your Own Adventure shows where we will be talking about songs that we genuinely loved from 1996. But until then, uh, Casey, do you want to let people know where they can find us on the internet? Gmail, Twitter, um, Facebook, or Tumblr. So 90% hits, 90% in words. Uh, hits in um, hieroglyphics, please. Tim, tell us about the Tumblr. Pretty sure this week on the Tumblr we're going to um, post, you know, videos, the number ones we've talked about, um, some of the other songs by those artists, and um, and we'll post some of the number twos of the week, uh, the songs that only got to number two that like were kept from the top by the Macarena, and there's, I'm sure there'll be some very interesting ones. <laughs> and, uh, yes, and so, and please... Number two. <laughs> <laughs> number two. <laughs> uh, and leave us messages on the Tumblr and on iTunes as well, and rate us on iTunes because it as usual, helps us be, uh, come out and search. And, and plus, we love all the comments that we get and read every single one. So uh, thank you for listening. And again, if you've heard anything about Mary, please let us know. Today is going to be the day that they're going to throw it back to you. By now, you should have somehow realized what you got to do. Sorry, that's just a bit of bile. You might have rabies. <laughs> 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 <laughs>